Well, everyone, I hope you had a great week. I hope you were able to celebrate Easter with loved ones. And for those of you who made it out to a a live time of worship, I hope you found it uh, encouraging to gather as the church. I was able to speak with a a few of you, and I know that... uh, that it did, many of you, it did your heart some good. So I'm glad to hear that. Guys, today we're going to jump back into our series called The Great Awakening, Living Life in Light of Revelation. And it's been quite a journey for those of you who've been with us the whole time. Uh, And I've truly enjoyed, as a pastor, looking through this apocalyptic book meant to encourage the church, meant to encourage the church under first century Roman rule, and in 2021 in the Tri-Cities under COVID restrictions and isolation. Uh, Today we're looking at chapter 11 and some very powerful symbolic imagery. So please grab your Bibles. Uh, The Apostle John, uh, while imprisoned for proclaiming Jesus as the true King of kings and Lord of lords above and beyond any emperor of Rome, was given these images by Jesus himself. Revelation 11 verses 1 to 14 says this, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified." For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The word of God this morning. Well, there is a lot packed in there. And many scholars say that this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Revelation to unpack. I seem to say that each week as we move further and further into Revelation. Uh, however, when we, when we keep in mind the symbolism and, and the use of Old Testament theme, themes, things get clearer. Yet not completely because we're separated by, you know, over 2,000 years of history or 2,000 years of history, language, culture, politics, powers, fears, and more. So in much of this, we are, we are doing our best being careful to interpret Revelation on its own terms, not ours. 
So as we jump in, just a reminder that we are in the middle of the seven trumpet blasts, which started in chapter eight. We're in kind of a, a music break before the final trumpet. Each bring a level of judgment, but also hope and repentance and a desire for repentance. In each judgment, God's hand is stayed as he hopes for repentance. And in today's text, it's no different. So let us look at a few of the interesting images and symbols we see, all of which have their source in the Old Testament. As I've said before, when we are looking to interpret Revelation, we do best to look back, not forward. John sees this entire apocalypse through the lens of the Old Testament. So first, we are told of the temple in verses 1 and 2. Literally, the word in the Greek is the word for the Holy of Holies, the, the area of the temple where only the high priest went. Once meant only for the high priest, now meant for all of those who called Jesus their Savior. Now, when John is writing uh, Revelation, there, there is no physical temple anymore. It was wiped out by the Romans in 70 AD. But the church already had a strong understanding of itself as the new temple, a community in which God dwelt. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Again, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, it says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You and I, if you are a Christ follower, we are the new temple. This is, that's what the church is. John is told to measure this temple. And this is not about figuring out how much space this community takes up, but about protection. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, the prophet Zechariah has a, has a vision of a man measuring Jerusalem on behalf of God so that God will encompass and protect his people. In Zechariah 2.5, it says, And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So to measure the temple community is to say, I see you and I surround you and I am in your midst and no one will take you from me. He's told to leave the outer courts, the area of those who have not found their way into the community, into the Holy of Holies. The, the implication here could be that these people came close to the community but refused a full immersion into Christ's reign. And they find themselves like, like the seeds in Jesus' parable of the sower being stolen by, by birds. They did not find deep root. Their faith did not take root. After the temple, we encounter the two witnesses, which is the majority of this text, this highly symbolic. And if we, if we try to make these two into actual people, we will have all sorts of problems. First, they are, they are uh, left in the street, but the, the word for body in Greek in verse uh, 8 is, is, a, is singular. It's one body. Second, the beast goes to war with these two witnesses. That language doesn't make sense. We, we might use that language today to simply mean to go up against, but in biblical text, that language always, always means, almost always means many going to war, two, two great armies going to war. That makes little sense if it's literal. So why two witnesses? Well, as we look at these two witnesses, we see that there is a lot to suggest that they are actually uh, the church, the repentant, prophetic, witnessing community of the church. The community measured out for, God, for God's protection, his temple, for the purpose of giving witness to the gospel. 
And we see a few, few things that, that, that help us look in that direction. These witnesses are referred to as two olive trees and two lampstands in verse 4. And we can remember that in Revelation, the lamps symbolize the, the church and the spirit of God. We see this back in chapter 1, verse 2. Olive oil was used to keep lamps lit. So two olive trees would mean a, a constant source for these lamps to be lit. One of the, the other times we see olive trees in Scripture is, again, in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 11. It says, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. In the, in the context of Zechariah, these two olive trees end up being two men by the names of Zerubbabel and Joshua, who were a king and a priest who lead God's people in the midst of those outside of Israel trying to stamp her out of existence. What a great image for the saints of God's community, a kingdom of priests, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, you may witness the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, into his community, into his temple. But there are others who fit into this image of two witnesses. There are characteristics here in Revelation 11 uh, that, are, that are shared with, with two of the most famous Jewish prophets of all time. In Revelation 11:6, it says, They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Well, those echo Elijah and Moses. Remember the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He was able to, to prophesy and to stop the rain for a time and then call down fire from heaven. We see that story in 1 Kings 17, chapter 17 and 18. Remember Moses who went before Pharaoh representing God's people and turned the Nile to blood and called down all sorts of other plagues. Both of these prophets were, were acting as the mouthpiece of God. Two, we also know that in Scripture, the number two is important in verifying truth. The image of two witnesses uh, fits that idea, that mandate. In Deuteronomy 19.15, we see that. In, in Deuteronomy 19.15, you can't bring accusation, you can't bring witness without bringing someone else to verify that truth. We also see that Jesus sent out disciples in groups of two to share the good news of the kingdom. This was a model of the early church. In the Gospel of Mark 6, verse 7, it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. We see it in the choosing of Barnabas and Paul for, for missionary work in Acts 13. These witnesses are given the power of fire from their mouths. It says fire out of the mouths of the prophets is referring to the, the word of truth that refine and cleanse. We see this in Jeremiah 5.17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire. And this people would, and the fire shall consume them. When the context of Jeremiah, he was speaking to a people who did not want to listen to God. And so his words burned like fire. They didn't want to hear it. It was offensive, but it was impossible to ignore. We see in verse 3 of Revelation 11 that these witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. That is a sign of the prophets of the Old Testament. It's a sign of repentance and a calling for repentance. Repentance. 
prophets are not proud. The church should not be proud. We need to be humble, not wielding a sword, but the fire of truth that comes with the gospel. Theologian Daryl Johnson takes all of these images that I've just walked through and all these thoughts together, and he says this. He says, the image of the two lampstands, two olive trees, two witnesses, is therefore a picture of the church under pressure in the world, full of the olive oil of the Holy Spirit, burning brightly with the fire of God. So we have this image, the repentant, prophetic, witnessing community of the church. And the real enemy we see of the church is not a political party, it's not an ideology, it's not a sexual ethic, but as Paul has told us in Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Represented in Revelation as the beast, which John will unpack more in Revelation 13. But for now to say the beast represents the kingdom and the kingdoms of the world in opposition to the kingdom of God moving in. And so the beast is at war with the church. Now, just a pause. What about the numbers here? You may notice, I noticed, and I didn't even have to use my fingers and toes, that each of these numbers is the same amount of time. 1,260 days is 42 months is three years and a half a year. All ways of saying the same thing. Again, sticking with the strong symbolism of Revelation, these are symbols, not statistics. They are, they are half uh, they are half of full time, completely a perfect seven. It is a way of saying not at the beginning and not at the very end, but in the middle of things, this is what it will look like. It's not to be calculated and pinpointed a day or an event. Believe me, that has been done over and over and over, and it has involved popes and presidents and denominations and remnants, and it always falls short because it fails to take in the original context and style of writing. So what is this episode that takes place in chapter 11? Because it is epic. We see that in verses 17 to 9, the death of the witnesses. The witness or the witnesses are killed and left in the streets of the city after they give their witness. And the beast, the evil forces of the world, seem to wipe them out. They are left in the middle of the city, spiritually, or some translations say symbolically, called Sodom or Egypt. These cities belong with Babylon and Rome. They, they are cities that notoriously warred with God's people, tried to snuff it out. Again, kingdoms that oppose and seek to snuff out God's kingdom. Notice in, in verse 9 that, that it's three and a half days. Some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations gazed at their dead bodies and refused to let them be placed in a tomb. In the ancient world, bodies were, were buried immediately. For, for a body to be left in the streets was considered the highest level of shame and ridicule. And here we see the witnesses dead and rejected and the world watching and rejoicing. Rejoicing that they no longer have to listen to the words of the witnesses calling them to remember their maker, calling them to repentance. They are so glad about it that they exchange presence. But notice the gospel infused here. Notice that the path of the lamb is the path of the church. First a cross, then a resurrection. First death, then glory. It was not by mistake that there is a mention that this happens in the same arena where Jesus was crucified, it says in verse 8. The same arena. A world that hated Jesus will surely hate his followers, Jesus said. And here we have the church following a similar path in this symbolic imagery. So rather than this being an image of a, a certain time in church history, this is the ongoing repeated story of the church 
oftentimes and in many cultures looking like it is obsolete or being accused of being obsolete and destroyed, yet continuing, coming back stronger. Richard Buckman says this, he says, the story is more likely to dramatize what will be happening all the time while Christians bear faithful witness to the world. But verse 11 tells us it's not the end. In 11 and 12, we see the resurrection of the church. After three and a half days, it says, the breath of life from God entered them. This, this brings thoughts of, Gen- of Genesis 2-7, the breath of God giving Adam life. Ezekiel chapter 37, where Ezekiel witnesses a vision of the valley of dry bones where, where God resurrects and breathes life into those who have been dead and forgotten. And of course, it brings to mind the resurrection of Christ. Made a mockery at the hands of the city, laughed at, scorned by, ultimately death, and then to have breath come into him once again three, day, three days later. Now, why this image? Why this story? Well, like most of Revelation, it's meant to be an encouragement to the church. The history of the church shows us that when the church seems to be on the verge of extinction, God can and does breathe life into it. So that the church, regardless of its place in history, its persecution by culture, can eternally declare in the words of the great theologians, Chumbawamba, I get knocked down, but I get up again, ain't never going to keep me down. Or perhaps, better as Christ said it in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Time and time again, secular prophets will be shown to be wrong when they predict and hope for the snuffing out of the gospel and the kingdom of God. There is a a well-documented story of French philosopher Voltaire, a a prophet of the Enlightenment who adamantly called for the tearing down and the end of Christian influence. He proclaimed in 1776 that the Bible would be obsolete within a century of his time, that it would disappear. Well, we are able to say now comfortably that he was wrong, but the irony of the story is even greater and his words more comical when we realize that the very home he lived in while making this prediction became a storehouse and a printing house for Bibles by the Evangelical Society of Geneva. In fact, paper purchased by Voltaire and the printing press he purchased for his own God-denying words was used after his death for the printing of Bibles and gospel booklets. Reminding us, as Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. In Revelation 11, this this realization leads to repentance. In verses 12 and 13, in the second half half of 12 and 13, we see the, the those who rejected and attempted to kill the prophets, the witnesses, are now in fear as they see the church unbreakable and glorified and, and ascending into heaven. Again, a mirror of Christ ascending, being taken safely to God's side. And then judgment comes. A tenth of the city, symbolic of the kingdom of earth, 7,000 die, symbolic, not statistic, one-tenth, and 7,000. Now, 7,000 is too many. God would rather it was none. And at first read, if we're just looking at numbers, we will be stunned. But there is something going on here that we can only understand, again, if we look back, back at the Old Testament. If you remember, when we looked earlier at the judgments of Revelation chapter 8, we heard the symbolic fraction of one-third. One-third who were affected by God's judgments. That we, we unpacked that's a number of mercy. It wasn't two-thirds. It wasn't three-thirds. It wasn't a whole. It was one-third. Why not all? So that many would repent. So that many would come to God. 
Here in Revelation 11, we hear one-tenth or 7,000, which sounds awful, but this revelation is teaching us gospel. It's not nine-tenths, it's not ten-tenths, it's one-tenth. That means that although 7,000 perish from an unwillingness to repent and give God deserved worship, and again, that's 7,000 more than we should prefer, 63,000 remain. And what is best is that unlike earlier opportunities in Revelation, these 63,000 repent. Verse 13 says they were terrified and they gave glory to God in heaven. Repentance, and we'll see celebration. Names added to the book of life. And so the, the increase in the celebration should be greater. Even, even the, the second woe has passed, it says in verse 14. The warning of a need for repentance. There, there is reason for celebration. Not only is the church intact and seen to be unbreakable, but more have been added to her community. Each time we read a scene like that of verses 15 to 19, when we realize that the kingdom of God is unbreakable and its community has increased, it should increase our worship. Well, this is a beautiful scene. Resurrection, repentance ends with another image of, of everything in its right place. And it happens several times in Revelation. All of creation properly placed around the throne, giving proper worship to her proper king. And we see this in verses 15 to 19 says this, it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, representing believers before and after Christ, sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces, worshiping God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant representing God's faithfulness and his covenantal relationship was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, all images of God's presence and power. Well, as this scene ends, we witness a scene we have gazed at several times, and we will see again in Revelation, a scene that places every other scene, every other monster in its proper place, a scene that places every personal monster and fear in its proper place, a scene that places the persecution and threat thrown at the church and rejection of God's kingdom in its proper place. The ongoing worship of God at his throne, which history cannot wipe out because history is held together by the one who sits there. This week, you and I are gonna witness lived out stories that disavow any responsibility to God. We're gonna hear news stories that place the church and belief in a bad light. You're gonna have conversations with people about the absurdity of faith, and each of us will swim in a culture that has done its best to make us busy, fill our heads with noise and thunder so that we will ignore what it is, or ignore what is at the center of our reality, a covenantal God who sees and knows, who rescues and vindicates. Guys, this week I want you to reflect on this image of Revelation, this throne room, because it's meant to be an encouragement to the church, the foundation and trajectory of our history. As God's faithful witnesses, the gates of hell shall not prevail. The lamb on the throne who was and is and is to come shall prevail and will reign from now and forevermore. Church, may this truth encourage you. Church, I love you. 
I miss you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and may he give you peace. God bless you, church.